Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. So there is Peter's greeting. Now, so who is the person? Who is Peter the Apostle of Jesus Christ? Well, I had a friend. He's still a friend, but I knew this young pastor whose hero was the Apostle Paul. And uh, he told me that, man, he identified most closely with Paul. And if you look at Paul's life, and if you read Paul's epistles, his letters, they speak of great overcoming and steadfast faith. Paul's just a champion of the Christian faith. The Apostle John, another one of the great apostles, one of the more prominent ones, he was known as the apostle whom Christ loved. And if you look at his life and you read his epistles, they speak about love. In fact, uh, he writes in his letters about loving God and loving one another. You can't say that you love God if you hate your brother. You know, things like this. And so uh, John is the apostle of love where Paul was the apostle of faith. I have to happen to think that the apostle Peter is my hero. And he's the man that I most identify with. I'm sure if he was giving church announcements, I mean, I'd feel real comfortable with him because he said things that he later regretted or things that he didn't say right and stuff. But he is the man that I most identify with in his life and his epistles speak of hope. So you have faith, hope, and love. And so Peter is the epistles or is the apostle of hope. I want to read a quote to you, and I, have, I apologize because it was written, yeah, I think, in 1915. So he kind of uses words that we don't typically use in these days. But it was written by F.B. Meyer in his book entitled Peter. In the foreword, it says this, Peter comes nearer to us than any of his brother apostles. We revere James, the brother of the Lord, for his austere saintliness. We strain our eyes in the effort to follow John to the serene heights whither his eagle wing bore him. But Peter is so human, so like ourselves in his downsittings and uprisings, so compassed with infirmity that we are encouraged to hope that the great potter may be able to make something even of our common clay. You look at Peter, this, this gruff fisherman, and, and God took him and, and, and made something out of his life. And, and so that's why I identify with Peter. It's like, you know, if God can do it for someone like Peter, maybe he can do it for me. And it's a hope for me. Peter, if you don't know this, he's mentioned more than any other disciple in the New Testament. His questions, and he had many questions, his conversations with Jesus, and he had many conversations with Jesus, are recorded more than any other disciple in the New Testament. 
Peter, you, know, you just just think about all these things that Peter, the, the fisherman, experienced in his life. Peter is the one who walked on water. You know, sometimes you say, well, you know, there's only one man that I know that walked on water. We're referring to Jesus. Well, actually, Peter walked on water, even if it was for a short time. But he walked on water. He was the one who said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, in response to Peter's confession there, said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's the one that made that famous statement that the church that exists today stands on that statement. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, that's the firm foundation of the Christian faith. Peter's the one who said that. Peter is one of the disciples who was alone with Jesus on the mountain when he was transfigured and when Elijah and Moses appeared. Peter saw that with his own eyes. He, he, he experienced that. He witnessed that. Of course, he said a few things that you know the Father kind of rebuked him for, but he saw those things. He was the one whom Satan specifically had asked Jesus to sift him like wheat. Jesus told Peter, Peter, I've prayed for you. And when you return, when you're restored, you know, restore your brothers. When you return, restore your brothers. This is Peter. Peter was the one who followed Jesus after his arrest and denied him three times. And when it dawned on him that Jesus had said, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And when the cock crowed and Peter heard that, Man, his, his heart just broke. And one of the Gospels accounts says that, you know, he's in the courtyard warming his hands at the fire. And one of the, or excuse me, when he did that and he realized what he did, he said, Jesus looked. He could see Jesus and he, Jesus looked at him. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. You know, it's not in the Bible, but there are some history records that I read not quite a while ago. But it said that often when the Apostle Peter was preaching, you go all over preaching and teaching that someone, some wise guy in the crowd would make the sound, a crowing sound of a rooster. You just, you know, can you imagine being Peter? You know, you, want to, you, you wish that that would be beyond you and you'd forget about that. And it, 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 it was your past and it was a mistake that you made. And there, you know, wherever you go trying to minister, someone would be reminding him of his faults. Maybe you're here today. And you've got some, some skeletons in your closet or some things that you're not very particularly proud of. And every once in a while, the enemy wants to crow, wants to make a noise to remind you of your past. We, we can identify with that. He was one of the apostles who raced to the empty tomb on the first day of the week. He is also the apostle Jesus specifically appeared to after his resurrection from the dead before all the other disciples saw him. Peter is also the one who was restored publicly by Jesus in front of all the other disciples. And so like F.B. Meyer says, you know, Peter, he rises to great heights. He saw so many wonderful things, so many great things. He did so many great things, but he also stumbled and he did some really bad things, some stupid things, some things that he would wish he had never done or things that he had wish he had never said. But he was the apostle who witnessed so much of Jesus' works. 
you know, I think of all these things with Peter. I go, you know, I can identify with him. Because there are times in my life where I feel like I've done really good things. I've said good things. I've soared. And then there's other times where it's like, man, I wish man, I wish I could take back that day. Or I wish I could take back those words that I said. So for me, man, I can identify great with Peter. I think probably many of us could this morning. But he was the apostle who witnessed so much of Jesus' ministry. And he was the apostle whom Jesus spoke to the most. Can you imagine... Jesus and Peter, and we don't, I, I don't think it records that there's any other disciples around him. They're just walking together, and they're being inquired about, or Peter's being inquired about, about you know, by the Pharisees about, hey, doesn't your master pay the temple tax? And Jesus said to him, hey, Peter, go, go fishing. Catch a fish. And he says, when you catch that fish, reach your hand inside and pull a coin out of its mouth. It'll be a temple coin, and it's enough for your tax and my tax. Believe it or not, Jesus paid taxes. But Peter's the one that experienced that. This fisherman turned apostle of the fastest growing movement on the face of the whole earth is the one who's writing this epistle. So you just let that sink in about who is the one who is writing these things. You know, Paul himself wrote so much of the New Testament, yet he himself admits that he was an apostle born out of time. He didn't witness all these things that Jesus did. He wasn't there at the beginning, but Peter was. Peter was there at the very beginning when Jesus started his ministry. And he saw all those things. And he, and he had all those questions. And he had probably had all those doubts at first. And yet, that experience that transformed him. So this is the man who wrote this letter that we're reading this morning. Who did Peter write his epistle to? Well, it says there, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. A pilgrim, I looked this up in Thayer's Dictionary, says one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the side of the natives. So a pilgrim is someone who's, first of all, they're in a foreign land and they're among a foreign people. My wife and I, we've moved many times, and we've kind of last 16, 17 years at least, maybe longer, we've settled here in Minnesota. But we've gone back and forth between California and Minnesota several times. And uh, every time you move, and if you've ever done that, you've ever moved, or you've come from another country, my parents, I was born in Canada, and my parents were born in Holland, and they emigrated to Canada, and they were, they were pilgrims in Canada. And then we emigrated to California, and we were pilgrims in California. You know, in a, in a, and, you know, thrown into this culture. I, you know, I, 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 uh, we moved to California in 1965, and I still have these memories, because I was a youngster then, but I still have all these memories of the hippies. And I mean, hippies were hippie hippies. I mean, you know, and they, they had their, they actually, they had their cars and they hand painted their cars with all kind of psychedelic design. I remember all these cars with all these psychedelic designs. We'd go camping and there'd be all these commune type stuff. I don't want to go into that because I was junk. But, but I mean, I remember all that stuff, you know. And, and, and coming from Canada, which was at that time a very conservative country. It's not anymore, but it was at that time. It was like, that was like culture shock, especially for my older brothers and my older sister. I mean, because they were at the age where they were, you know, a lot closer to the age of these other people. And so, you know, when you're a pilgrim... And you're in a foreign land and you're among a foreign people. First of all, you're in a strange place. And secondly, you're among people that are a little bit different than you. 
You know, when you and I enter into the kingdom of God, we once were comfortable in the world. We once were just like everybody else, but all of a sudden now we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And now, man, now it's like, you know, this, this world is just not my home. I just don't feel comfortable. I don't feel, I don't feel at home here anymore. And the people, they have goals that are just, they're not my goals. They have things that they do that I, I don't do. I just don't, I don't feel like I'm at home with the people as well. So that really describes you and I. And so Peter is writing to the pilgrims, and it says of the dispersion. Now, normally when you read of the dispersion, right away your mind thinks about the Jewish people, right? The diaspora, the people who in 70 A.D., after this letter was written, they were dispersed throughout the whole world. But I think this letter is actually written to Gentile believers, And the reason why is because in chapter 2, verse 10, and in chapter 4, verse 10, he refers to the Gentiles. And I I, I think it's written to Gentile believers. And so, Gentile believers who are of the dispersion? Well, it wouldn't be too long after this letter was written that Christians would be scattered. They would be dispersed due to the persecution of Emperor Nero, Nero. Excuse me. Now, to the believers at that time, that dispersion, that persecution, that, that thing that sent them out of their, their, uh, their, you know, where they lived or whatever, you know, losing their jobs, whatever it was that had happened to them in that persecution, I'm sure to the believers at that time, that was a hardship. It was a time of uncertainty in their lives. They were certainly out of their comfort zone, and yet the Lord in His providence used the dispersion of the Christians throughout the Roman Empire to exponentially expand and to multiply the kingdom of heaven. So many people came to faith as the testimonies of all these Christians scattered throughout the world. Sometimes, you know, the Lord puts us in difficult places, and we would look at our situation, we say, man, this is a hardship. Or maybe we're in a situation where there's a lot of uncertainty. Man, I just don't, I just, nothing feels like, nothing feels certain anymore. Or certainly we get those times where we're out of our comfort zone. And if you're like me, I don't like that. I don't like being out of a comfort zone. I don't like uncertainty. I like knowing what's going to happen. I don't like hardship. I'm from California, man. Come on. Hey, dude, I like it easy, you know. But you know, so often the Lord does that in our lives, doesn't he? He does that because He's wanting to get us out of our little comfort zone, our little place, our little cocoon, because He wants us to be, He wants to use our lives. And sometimes it takes being spread out like that or being scattered like that. And so for the believers, it was probably an uncomfortable time. It was probably a difficult time, no doubt. And yet the Lord used it to just expand the kingdom of God incredibly during that time. And so He mentions the pilgrims of the dispersion, and then he says Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These probably were the first places that Peter's letter would have been delivered and read to because that's how they did it. They would write their letters and they would deliver it to a church. Now this one didn't go to a specific church. It went to believers in these regions here, and they would probably take it to the churches in that region, and then they would pass the letter along to other churches and that's basically, they would read, you know, they, didn't, they had the Old Testament scriptures in that day, but they didn't have a Bible like you do and I do. So they would get these letters, and they would read these letters, and they would, they would talk about these letters, and they would study these letters. And, of course, now we have them in our Bibles. 
Well, Peter calls his readers elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And what that simply means is that we were chosen by God according to his foreknowledge. You know, God knows the beginning and he knows the end. And just as God saw in the end the apostle Simon Peter, the gruff fisherman from the very beginning, God chose him to be a disciple and later a great leader in the early church. God saw this fisherman. He saw his beginning, but he knew his ending. He'd be one of my children. He'd be a man who would be very influential in the early church. God knows your beginnings, and God knows your endings. And the good news is, He's chosen you, and He's chosen me to be a people after His own heart. You know, there's nothing accidental in your life to God. Now, things that happen in our lives are accidental. Last week, things happened in my life that I certainly wasn't expecting, and it's like, well, this is kind of weird. Came out of the blue. But nothing's accidental with God. God's been working in your and my life even before we even knew Him to draw us to Him. So we were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then he says, in or through sanctification of the Spirit. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be set aside or consecrated or purified. When you and I repent of our sins and we put our trust in Christ for salvation, you know, there's no waiting period. There's no uh, probation period. The moment you repent of your sins and invite Jesus Christ into your heart to be Lord and Savior, you are a sanctified saint. That means that maybe, maybe you still have junk in your life. Maybe, maybe there's habits that you're still doing, sinful habits or a lifestyle that you're still living. But once you give your heart to Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins. If you were to die that day, you're going to go to heaven because you are a saint. You're sanctified. But God's not done with us. Once you and I invite Jesus Christ in our hearts, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit enters into our lives and He's a sign and a seal, a guarantee of our salvation. And now He starts a work in you and He starts a work in me to purify us, to make us more like Jesus Christ. What are we chosen and sanctified for? It says it right there, for obedience to God's will. You know, you and I were not simply chosen and sanctified in order to have eternal life. Just think about that. If that was the case, then every time someone repented and confessed their sins and repented, poof, they'd be gone. You know, okay, I'm done. They've accepted me. I'm taking them to heaven. God doesn't do that. He has you and I to live our lives out in obedience to Him, to glorify Him. He wants to use our lives for His purposes. And so we're not simply chosen and sanctified in order to have eternal lives. We're chosen and sanctified in order to obey God in this life. You know, in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And before you and I repented of our sins and before we put our trust in Christ for our salvation, it was impossible for us to please God. Utterly impossible to please God before you and I were saved. But once we're forgiven, once the Holy Spirit took up residence in our hearts, now we're able to finally live a life of obedience to God. Before you couldn't, but now you have the ability to. And it was only made possible by the sprinkling 
of blood of Jesus Christ. I like what Tim, our, the missionary from uh, Dominican Republic, Tim and Trina, were here with their son Darren uh, last week, and, and, and I invited Tim to just to share. I don't know how many of you were here. Some of you weren't here. And, um, but he talked about blood, the blood of Jesus, and how you know people don't want to hear about the blood. It's like it's gross. It's disgusting. But, but that's the gospel. That blood was shed for our sins. It's, 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 it's vitally important. It's, it's, you, can't, you can't have a Christian life without the shedding of blood. And so for you and I, all this is only possible by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean, the sprinkling of blood? Now for a Gentile believer, I'm a Gentile believer, this would need an explanation. But for a Jewish believer, man, it would click with them just like that. They would understand. You see, there were three instances in the Old Testament when blood was sprinkled, when it was sprinkled on people. First of all, when the covenant, which is an agreement, was made or established between God and His people Israel on Mount Sinai, God told Moses to sprinkle the blood, sprinkle the people with the blood of a lamb. Later on, when a leopard, a leper, not a leopard, when a leper would be cleansed from his leprosy, part of the the rite of the the cleansing was the priest would sprinkle blood on the leper who is cleansed. And then when Aaron and his sons were ordained to the priesthood, they would have blood applied to their right thumb of their right thumb, their right toe, and it was just interesting when you read about it. It's in in Exodus. And I think what Peter is saying here is God has established a new covenant or a new agreement with you and I at Calvary when Jesus shed his blood for you and my sin. So the blood was shed at that one for that covenant to be made with you and I. And leprosy in the Bible is a picture of sin. And you and I were, were cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ just like a leopard was cleansed from leprosy. And that sprinkling signifies that. And then... We've been ordained to a royal priesthood. And Peter's actually going to write about that in chapter 2 when we get to there. All those things. That's the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're getting close to the end of the greeting. We have just made it through the greeting so far. Amazing. I don't know about you. Uh, I think sometimes I can be pretty quick-witted. But I've been around other people that can just walk circles around me. They just, they're just so fast on their feet with stuff, and I just don't have quick comebacks. I don't know if any of you are like that. But have you ever had someone who's really quick-witted say something to you, and, and you, you didn't really have an equally quick comeback? What do you say? You know, when somebody says something to that, it, usually my response is, oh, yeah, well, same to you, buddy, but more of it. It's interesting. In all the apostles... Uh, excuse me, in all the Apostle Paul's epistles, he greets the saints with a very profound phrase. It's grace and peace. But we could do a whole Bible study on, on grace and peace. But I can almost see Peter wishing that he had come up with that phrase. And yet Paul had already coined it, right? So, you know, I think Peter, you know, he just takes Paul's grace and, pre, grace and peace and he improves on it. And he basically says, grace and peace, but more of it, buddy. Of course, they didn't talk that way in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Their vernacular is probably different. So instead, he probably says, grace to you and peace be multiplied, more of it. I don't know if that's true. (laughs) I'm joking, joking, of course. 
But Peter is really no lightweight when it comes to his epistle. God took a simple and a gruff fisherman, a guy who was uneducated, he was unskilled in theology. Peter, you know, he basically just simply spent time with Jesus. He poured out his heart to Jesus. I mean, he asked questions that we would have asked if we were by Jesus. He learned from Jesus. And he watched Jesus. And he just lived with Jesus. And once Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, God took that uneducated, that unskilled in theology fisherman, and he gave him wisdom to the point that even the most educated, the most skilled in all things Hebrew, which was the Sanhedrin, they were confounded and they marveled at Peter. In Acts 4.13, it says, now when they saw, and speaking of the Sanhedrin, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's so beautiful. Don't you want that to be said of you? You know, people just like, you know, I look at you and you're, you're not much to look at. You know, you're not, you're not skilled. You don't have a PhD. You know that. But, but man, you've got this wisdom. Where'd you get it from? From being with Jesus. From learning from the Lord. From spending time in His presence. From reading His Word. Well, that's the greeting. Now we get into the meat of Paul, Peter's epistle. Excuse me. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ from the dead. I don't know how many of you know anything about Islam, but Muslims have their five pillars of faith. One of them, Shahada, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, it's declaring that there is no God except Allah, and Muhammad is Allah's messenger. That's one of their first pillar. Their second pillar is what they call Salat, and it's ritual prayer five times a day. And so they're very, very religiously praying five times a day. And then Sakat, where they give 2.5% of their savings to the poor and the needy. And then Psalm, which is fasting and self-control during the month of Ramadan. And then their Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca. And they're supposed to do it at least once in their lifetime if they're able to. You know, the Muslims, they do these five pillars of their faith. They do these five things, hoping that these five things that they do, these five good things that are required of a Muslim to do, will outweigh any sins that they've committed. Because they believe in committing, they know about committing sin too. And so they do these five things, hoping that Allah will grant them entrance into paradise. That's a false hope. It's hope, but it's a false hope. You know, you, you say, well, I don't, know if I, I don't know if that's the way they look at it. We had a, a Muslim leader here in Rochester. We met with them years ago at a hotel, and they shared their faith, and we shared our faith. We had Sammy Tanago kind of, we had like our, our uh, designated hitter, you know, to share, because he studied Sharia law, and, and he knows all this stuff, and he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things, and it still struck me to this day, whenever I look at a Muslim person, this, the leader of their mosque said, you know, we do these things hoping that when it comes to Judgment Day, 
that the good things that we've done will outweigh the bad things that we've done in our lives. Can you imagine living your life like that? Man, I'm doing all these things, and man, I hope I've done enough good things so that you know when it when it comes time to judgment, man, my my you know I've done enough good things that you know the scale will tip in the fa- in the balance of paradise. That's a false hope. What a way to live. For you and I, man, the Bible says we have a living hope. Why? Because Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, and He paid the price for our sin on the cross, and His sacrifice for our sin was accepted by God, and He rose from the dead. If His sacrifice had not been accepted, He would have stayed dead. He would have stayed in the grave. He would have been like all the rest who had sinned before. They're dead, and they're dead. They're, they're not. But because Jesus is God, because He didn't sin, because He was a perfect sacrifice, God accepted His sacrifice, and He rose again from the dead. And because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, man, we have a living hope that we, you and I, who have put our faith and our trust in Christ Jesus, that we're also going to be resurrected to eternal life, right? We have that same hope because Jesus rose from the dead. We know that we will, be, we will rise from the dead one day too. And so we have this living hope. I like what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 17, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, man, we are of all men the most pitiable. Isn't that so true? But, but it's not that way. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We have that living hope. And so, according to His abundant mercy, God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. If you are here this morning and you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you have an eternal inheritance reserved for you. And you have God's guarantee of God's Word. You know, there is something to be said about just hitting the road and figuring out, you know, going on a trip and figuring out your accommodations along the way. One of, one of our most memorable vacations when the kids were younger is we had a final destination of Canada, I believe it was. I was going to visit my relatives up there. We were in California at the time. We had a camper trailer. And we, I had a bunch of time, a bunch of vacations saved up, and I took it all in one chunk. And we just got in the car, and we just drove. And we said, you know what? We're going to stop. Hey, let's look at that. Let's go over to that site thing, and we'll check out that monument, or we'll do this. And we just drove, and we just found places to camp along the way. And I think, I don't know if I can ask Luke, but I think that was one of the most memorable vacations, for, at least it was for me. It was so relaxing, so enjoyable. So there's something to be said about just hitting the road and figuring out things along the way. But also, there's also something to be said about traveling and having reservations made ahead of time, isn't it? And you know, we... we we uh, had a family reunion up in Canada two years ago in the summer, and my brother and I, my brother and his wife and Teresa and I, we got in a car and we took off from Minnesota, and we were driving, and we would look at the map and go, well, we kind of figure out we'll be here by this day, so we would call ahead and make a reservation, and it was like, you know, because we were going to some places where there might be a lot of tourists, it's like we don't have to worry if we get there, there won't be a place to sleep. We've got our guarantee. 
so we can just enjoy the day, relax, and enjoy the trip because we know where we're going to spend the night. So there's definitely something to be said about that. Well, I tell you what, when it comes to eternal life, I would much rather have my reservation guaranteed than going, you know what, I'm just going to hit, and I'll just see, maybe we'll figure out when we get there. Yet there's a lot of people that live their lives that way, isn't there? I'll just figure out, you know, I'll stand before him, I'll tell him all the good things I did, and maybe St. Peter will let me in. You know, that's their typical response from people. But you and I who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have a guarantee. We have a reservation. It is incorruptible, undefiled, and it will not fade away. In other words, you're not going to get there to find out the terms of God's covenant had changed in the meantime. When I had my birthday this winter, I got a, a, a little postcard from, excuse me, a little postcard from Menards. And uh, they said, happy birthday. I guess I must be in their birthday club or something. They said, happy birthday, and we want to give you this free screwdriver. And, you know, they had a picture of it on it. And it was a wood-handled screwdriver, and it was a, you know, Phillips and a standard. And I don't know what it is. I'm always missing Phillips screwdrivers. I mean, i got a ton of standard screwdrivers. Phillips are like gold around my house because it's like, where did that thing go? And I only have a few of them. And so I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I'll have one of those ones where I can re- you know, flip it around. And I love the wood handle. I was really looking forward to getting this screwdriver. It's silly, I know. I mean, it's, just, it's probably a chintzy one. But I just was like, man, I really want another screwdriver. So I waited a while. I got time. You know, I kind of procrastinated going. And it was a couple months later, and I saw the, the expiration date on this thing, you know, come before so-and-so time. And so I thought, well, I better go. So about a month before it expired, I, I showed up at Menards. It was at the store where they're getting ready to close down, and, you know, they were getting ready to open up the new one. And I said, I'm here with my birthday gift card. And I gave it to the person. And they go, oh, oh, she, he's looking around. He goes, oh, he goes, yeah, we don't have any more of those anymore. I'm like, he goes, well, I'll tell you what. He goes, we, we've got this other gift. And so he pulled out this little exacto knife thing. He goes, would you like that? And I'm like, I guess so. I get showed it to Teresa. She's like, cool, you know, <laughs> just what I need for crafts, which it probably is going to be handy for that. But I really wanted my wood blade screwdriver, my wood handled screwdriver with a reversible thing. I thought that would be so cool. It had changed, it wasn't reserved for me. I, you know, I, I was really let down. You and I, when we die, when we come before Jesus Christ, our Savior, is, He's not going to say, hey, sorry, you know, I, I, I thought I had calculated enough rooms in my mansion. I, sorry, they're all booked up. <laughs> we'll give you a tent out here by the, by the gate, you know. We have a reservation. We have an eternal home guaranteed for us. And so for you and I, what a comfort that is traveling through life, right? It's like, you know what? Yeah, I don't know what the road, I don't know the bumps in the road, and I might know, I might have to take a detour, and, you know, there's things are going to happen, but you know what? I don't care because I know where I'm spending eternity. So I don't have to worry about the trip. I can just enjoy it, or I can relax, I don't have to get stressed out. I know where my home is. Verse 5 Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I don't know about you, but that is such a comfort to me that I am kept by the power of God. I am not kept by the power of dawn. I'm not clinging to my salvation by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. It's God and His power 
who keeps me. What a comfort that is. I don't have to work and, you know, it's like, oh, man, I didn't pray this morning. Oh, no, I wonder if I'm losing my salvation. God's going to kick me out now. It's God who saved us. It's God who keeps us. What a comfort that is. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. So, you know, Paul's, or excuse me, Peter's going through all these things. He's, you know, heaven, we have heaven guaranteed to us. You know, we're kept by the power of God. He says all these great things. And he says, man, in this you greatly rejoice. And I don't know about you, but hopefully the things that we just read this morning, if this doesn't give you hope this morning, man, I don't know what will. That's the good news. But then Peter adds a little more to his letter here that I don't really, and you probably don't really want to hear. He says, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Oh, man. I thought it was all good news. And now you're talking about trials. Now you're talking about difficulties and persecution. Peter wrote this letter. And pretty soon, in fact, very soon after Peter's letter was written, the church, the believers, they would undergo the most intense persecution of their lives. In fact, many of them, many of them would lose their lives for their testimony of Jesus Christ. They would pay the ultimate price for their faith. Many of them would be burned alive in Caesar Nero's garden. He would use people, use Christians, and use them as human torches. Many of them would be thrown to the lions, to be torn apart by lions. If you've never read this book, I encourage you to read it. It's Fox's Book of Martyrs. And you can and it basically the, the Fox, the author, he basically documents as much as history we know about from history of the early church fathers and the and the early Christians and how they lost their how they were martyred for their faith and if if anything, man, I encourage you to read that book. It's a it's a fabulous book. But many of the church would undergo intense persecution. But you see, what Peter is telling them is there's hope for the believer even in your suffering. You can undergo some tough things, but man, you've got heaven waiting for you. You have that eternal life reserved for you. Verse 7, and here's the reason why you and I are going to undergo persecution that the genuineness of our faith, of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to uh, excuse me, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those things that you and I go through, those hardships, those trials, the fire of trials in our lives. Sometimes we go, man, is there any purpose behind what I'm going through? Does God even know what I'm going through? And if he knows, does he even care about what I'm going through? I can tell you emphatically, yes and yes. He knows what you're going through, and he cares about what you're going through. And on top of that, he has a good purpose in what you and I are going through. Verse 8. Whom, having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I love that song that we sing. I had it, I had it written down here somewhere. 
I don't know where it is. Oh, well. It's a song that we've been singing, part of our worship, you know. Pretty soon our faith will be sight. Seeing you face to face, you know. I, I know I've got it here somewhere. Ah, here it is. <laughs> Jesus, I pray that you would come today. Faith will be replaced with loving you face to face. I love that song. Because I just think about that. You know, right now we're, we go by faith. We haven't seen Jesus Christ we believe that He exists. We, we believe that He died on the cross. We, we know in our hearts. We've seen Him working in our lives. But it's still faith, right? But there's coming a time when that faith is going to be replaced with sight. And we'll see Him face to face. Verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You know, I've said this before, and you've probably heard this before, but the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You see, the Old Testament prophets, they were giving these visions and these glimpses. I mean, we read in Ezekiel, he'd get visions and he'd get glimpses of the coming Messiah, of a time when God's people would be redeemed. And they had types in the Bible, in the Old Testament. They had symbols and everything was pointing to the coming Messiah. They had all these hints and clues and put yourself in the, in, the, in the shoes or the sandals of one of these prophets. You have these, these things that God's telling you to, re, to record and to re, write down, these visions that you've been getting. And yet you don't have the full picture. And these prophets, they didn't have the full picture. They just had bits and pieces. And yet they faithfully obeyed the Lord God and they wrote down what they were told to write down. You know, I look at my life. Sometimes it's like, I feel like God's telling me to do something. It's like, wait a minute. Why are you having me do this? What's the end result? And these are not our lives. We want it. We want full disclosure from God. Why is this? I'll follow you as long as I know what's going on. And God says, no, no, no. You don't need to know it all. Just trust me and just do it. God requires that of each one of us. God wants you and I to walk by faith. That's why the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please Him. He wants us to walk by faith. And so these prophets, they faithfully recorded their messages publicly. But I imagine privately, man, they were just longing to know more detail. Maybe they would compare notes. You know, some of these prophets were contemporaries with each other. Ezekiel and Daniel were contemporaries. I think Hosea was another one. They were contemporaries with each other. They probably compared notes. Hey, what did God tell you? Well, he told me this. What did God tell you? Well, let's put it all together, you know. But verse 12, it says, To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. But get this, not only did the prophets long to know and to understand what you and I know now as believers, but it says things which angels desire to look into. Even the angels in heaven they didn't have the full picture. And they were just God's messengers. And even they wanted to know, wow, why are we showing up at this field with these, there's like a couple of shepherds out there with all the sheep and we got to sit here and we got to get in our choir robes and we got to sing to these shepherds. There's no crowds here. 
and yet they faithfully did it. Even angels long to know. And the thing is, you and I know it. We've been given the full picture. Man, all those things that were prophesied in the Old Testament were finally revealed to us. It's Jesus Christ. That's the answer. He's the answer. He's the purpose behind everything that's been happening. He's the focal point. And He has been revealed. And He has lived. And He has died. And He rose again from the dead. And now we can have Him in our hearts. So what do we do with what we've been with this new understanding that we've been given? Well, come back and we'll talk about it next time. <laughs> Cliffhanger. We're going to stop there this morning because we do have communion. And uh, is it just you or something? Okay, Luke's coming up. We're going to go ahead and come up, Luke. I don't know. I hope you're encouraged this morning. Um, you know, if you're going through a tough time and you need prayer this morning, I'm going to be available afterwards. I'd love to pray with you if you have any prayer needs. Um, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, I just want to tell you, hey, you know, you've got your reservations. Just, you know, relax. And, and just, just trust God. And, I, you know, as I'm saying this to you, you know, I'm studying this last night and this morning I was going over it again. And I'm studying, I'm going, Lord, okay, I think... You know, I'm saying to these people, but I have to say it to myself. I need to relax. I need to just say, okay, Lord, I, you know, I, I don't know why we're going this direction, but we are. And in the end, I have my reservation. So, okay, I'm going to trust you because there's a purpose in it. I'm sure there is. And that's the same for all of us in our lives.